and we're in James chapter 1. And you know, a few weeks ago, I uh, drove out to New Hampshire to go see some old friends of mine. Paula was going to go, but she ended up not being able to, so I, had, I drove out by myself. And when you get to New Hampshire, well, even Vermont and upper New York, it becomes very woodsy and very hilly. A lot of hills, a lot of valleys. Well, I got to a point in New Hampshire, and, and um, I was on this just back road, and very rural, very woodsy, very hilly, and I needed to get gas. And I was about 45 miles from my destination, from the house I was going to, and I had no idea where I was going. Luckily, I had my phone with my GPS. And I pulled over for gas, and I got gas, and um, my phone was no longer working. And I'm like, where'd my map go? And it kept coming up, data not available. I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand phone. Um, and I tried everything, data unavailable. I could not get my maps back up. And because of technology, do you think I have a Atlas in my car? No. So in my mind, I'm thinking, well, if my phone's not working, probably my map on my, my car won't work. So I truly did not know what I was going to do because I, I had no idea where to go. So I drove down the road a little bit, tried to get up a hill, and uh, I got to this interstate. I'm like, do I take the interstate? Do I stay on the road I'm on? I have no idea. My phone still, data not available. So I'm like, okay, I'll try my car. And luckily, praise God, my car GPS worked. And I was able to get where I was going. But here's the thing. If my car GPS didn't work, I would have been lost. I would have been so off course, not knowing where to go. All right? You know, as a Christian on this side of heaven, how many of you know you are on a journey? And uh, in this journey, um, there are times it's desert. There are times it's woodsy. There are hills and there are valleys. The reality is on this side of heaven, we all are on a path. And, and until God takes us home, we are navigating through this path. And if we don't have God's word, it's almost like something is saying, data not available. Because here's why. All of us have a spiritual enemy. And that spiritual enemy has only one purpose for your life, to get you off course. He wants to get you off course spiritually. He wants to derail you spiritually. He wants to get you living apart from Christ and his word. And he will do every kind of tactic to do that. He wants to get you off course. You see, that's why 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says, Be watchful. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He prowls around and he's looking at each and every one of your lives. He's trying to figure out what can I use in their life to derail them? What tactic can I use in their life to get them off course? Today's message is all about staying on course. Now, Apparently this week, there was some failure in communication with, tech, with emails that um, my email did not get passed around to the, the right people. So there are no, there will be no PowerPoint apparently. 
Okay? So um, you're going, all going to have to take good notes. So you're going to have to listen. All right? You're going to have to pay attention to this message. Because this message, <laughs> Amanda was like, I'm like, did it come up? Nope, it did not. So um, this message is vital. So important for us because we've got to stay on course. So let me read our text today. James chapter 1, starting in verse 16. He writes and he says, Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be kind of first fruits of his creatures. Father, we thank you that you love us, you are good. And Father, today I am asking that you would open all of our hearts to hear your word today, to hear the depth of the truth of it today. Lord, we have an enemy that wants to derail us. We have an enemy that prowls around looking for someone to devour, to do anything he can to get us off course spiritually. And so, Father, I would pray that today you would instruct us as only you can do. Your Holy Spirit would open the word of truth to our hearts and enlighten the eyes of them. And Lord God, we just know we need you at this time. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, to stay on course, here's the first thing that you and I need to do. To stay on course, affirm that deception is real. In order for you and I to stay on course, holy cows. Cody, you're the man. Way to bring it. In order to stay on course, you and I need to know that deception is real. And that's what James says right there at the beginning of verse 16. He says, do not be deceived, my brothers. Do not be deceived. Now, here's the thing we need to understand about that one little phrase right there, do not be deceived. This is actually a transitional verse. James is transitioning from what he has just said to where he's about to go, all right? It's, he's transitioning. It's like a bridge. It's bridging one thing to another thing. And so James is transitioning here with this idea of not being deceived. Now, James starts this letter in verse 2 with the idea of talking about trials. You know, in verse 2, he says, count it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. And, and we talked about that for a few weeks. Then, but we're in trials, every kind of trial. All right. And down through verses 2 through 12, that's where he's talking about trial, trial, trials. And then you get to verse 13 and he talks about temptation. It's almost like he took a right turn. And now when you get to verse 16, he's talking about good things and perfect gifts and it's almost like he's switching gears but that's not the case James in this portion of scripture he's running one thread all the way through it from verse 2 to verse 18 there is a common thread going all the way through Okay, it's not like when he got to, to verse 13 there and talking about temptation, he was like, well, I'm done talking about trials. I'm going to talk about temptation now. Well, I'm done talking about temptation. I'm going to talk about good gifts. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is when you're going through your trials, understand that temptation will come off the, on the heels of them. And, where he, and, and then he's trying to say, and all, all also understand, when you're going through those trials, not only is temptation going to come, but you will also be deceived by them. Because here's what he's saying, is 
when we are having the trials on the outside, Satan is going to use temptations and deception on the inside to get us off course. Because what he wants to do is when you and I are going through the trial, when you're going through that storm, when life is hard, guess what the enemy wants to do? He wants to convince you of one little truth. God is not good. And if he can get you to become angry at God and questioning God and grumbling against God, he will get you off course. And so James is showing this. Now, maybe you are reading this and you've read the text of temptation. You've read the, the, I just read our text and you're thinking, Jim, I don't see Satan in there. How can you say that this is Satan coming against us? Because it's actually in the word deceived itself. Okay. Our English word deceived is translated from a Greek word. Okay. And the Greek word that we get our English word deceived from is um, the Greek word planau. And that Greek word planau, which we get our English word deceived from, is written in what is called a present, um, present passive. Let me look at it again. A present passive voice. Now, for you and I, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Here's what that means. In Greek, because the New Testament was written in Greek. So in the Greek language, they had different tenses. You know, we got past, present, future tense, but they had all kinds of ways to, to define a word. So when it talks about it being a present passive voice, what that means is this. The deception in a passive vo or in a present voice means it's continuous. There's no indication that it's coming to a conclusion. So what James is saying is this deception is in such a way that it's gonna happen all the time. But it's also written in a passive voice, which means the subject is being acted upon. Okay? Everybody raise your hand because you're the subject. You're the subject. You're the person who is being acted upon with deception. Okay? So the deception is coming upon you and it's not going anywhere. It's going to happen all the time. So the question is, if I'm the subject, if I'm the person and I'm being acted upon, who is it being acted upon from? Well, we can deduce that it has only one source. Because here's why. If I'm being acted upon, am I deceiving myself then? No. Okay, it's coming from an outside source. So I'm not doing it. Question, would God deceive you? No, because even with the word tempted in verse 13, it's the same thing. It's a present passive voice. It's continuous and it's being acted upon. And in verse 13 it says, God doesn't tempt anyone. So if God doesn't tempt us, why would he deceive us? So that only leaves one conclusion. If I don't deceive myself, and God doesn't deceive us, then who's the likely culprit? Satan. Because in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it says that the devil or Satan deceives the whole world, meaning all people. He deceives everybody. He is the deceiver. He is the one who is doing the action, and you are the recipient of it. So James is saying here, that this deception is coming to you. 
It is going to happen, and the enemy is going to make sure it happens. And so he is warning the, the brethren, the, the, the Christians, don't be deceived. Don't let it happen. Now, here's the thing you and I need to understand. When you read in the Bible these little words, don't be deceived, don't just fly over that. Understand, that's important, okay? I mean, think about it. If you tell your, if you give your child, you know, let's say you had, you know, like a little second grader going to school for the first time. Not for the first time, but for the first day of school in the, in the fall. And you give them a warning. Do not talk to strangers. And they looked at you and like, eh, I don't want to pay, pay attention to mom. She doesn't know what she's talking about. I'll talk to strangers. Would you think your kid was like wise or unwise at that point? Very unwise because they're not listening to me. So when God's word says, do not be deceived, guess what you and I should do? Heed that. In fact, in different times in the Bible, we see this idea of God telling us not to be deceived. In the book of Deuteronomy, when Israel was about to go into the promised land, God tells them this. He says, beware, lest your hearts be deceived and you turn away and serve other gods worshiping them. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And simply what that means is people who are unsaved does not go to heaven. He says, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, the greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. He says, don't be deceived on that. But yet, think about this for a moment. When someone dies, doesn't matter how they lived, unless they were really, 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 really bad, what do we say? They're in a better place. Doesn't matter what they believe. Doesn't matter if they went to church. It doesn't matter anything. They're in a better place. You see the deception. Another verse is 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good character. But yet how many Christians love to hang out with their old friends? How many Christians hang out with the wrong people and before you know it, we're living like them? Why? Because bad company corrupts good character. We're deceived. 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Or I mean, I'm sorry, Galatians 6, 7 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. You see, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Over and over, the Bible tells us not to be deceived. Because this is what the enemy wants to do. He wants to deceive you, to derail you, and get you off course spiritually. You see, that's why Paul even writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You see, Paul writes, he says, I, I, I just have this feeling that you could be deceived and led astray. That's what the enemy wants to do. 
And that's why you and, you and I need to understand and we need to affirm deception is real. And it's coming to me. And the enemy's not going to stop. And he will do whatever he can to deceive me, to trick me, to get me to go sideways. You see, this is why it's so important for you and I as believers to be in the word of God. To be reading it. Okay? To attend a small group. To attend a Sunday school class. To come to church to hear the word of God preached. Why? Because the word of God is truth. And so the more deception I hear, guess what? I have to hear more truth because it's only truth that can expel the lie, expel the deception. So the more truth you have, the more you're able to identify and see the lie, the deception and go, I can't buy that. I buy the truth. So in order to stay on course, you need to affirm deception is real it is coming. Here's the second thing. To stay on course, affirm God's goodness. Now we're going to get into some really, really good stuff here. So he says there in verse 16, do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. The above is he's talking about God. He's like, from God, everything good that comes from him. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from God. But where he's drilling down even more so is not just the good gifts that you and I give, but the fact that God is good and he gives good. The heart of this part is this. God is good. Okay? And that's a truth that a lot of Christians grapple with because we look at bad things and we determine what? How can God be good? You see, this is why we... Now, this part where I'm going to start teaching, um, we're going to get out of the shallow end of the pool. We got to go to the deep end. Everybody go, all for favor going deep? Because if, if you can grasp this part, what I'm about to teach you, it will change your life spiritually. And it's this. When it comes to the word good, you have to think about good differently. Okay? You have to understand, because what we do is we view good from a temporal, horizontal way, okay? We view good if something isn't negative or if it's not bringing me pain, then it's good. Beautiful sunrise, that's a good thing. I get a job promotion, that's a good thing. If you go to a restaurant and you like the food and someone asks you, how was the food? It was good. You read a book and someone says, what was the book like? It was good. We see a movie. I love that movie. It was good. We, we look at things and we test things. If, as long as it's not bringing me pain, it is good. If I like it, it is good. Okay? That's a problem. Because as soon as something is bad, something is negative, something brings me pain, it is not good. 
And this is where we have to define good differently. We have to view what is good differently. We can't view what is good just on a horizontal, temporal, human, humanistic way. We've got to be able to view good vertically. How does God see good? You see, this is why defining the word good from the Greek language is so important. You know, like I said, we, we have the word good in English, and we just kind of think of good as something that's just not bad. That's good. But in, in Greek, the, the word good, our English word good, comes from a Greek word that actually has a couple different meanings. One meaning is this, that, that good is something that is intrins- intrinsically and inherently good in quality. That's how we usually think of good. Okay, we get, a, we get a new job, that's good. We, ha- we get married, that's good. If someone has a baby, that's good. Those are intrinsically, you know, things, tangible things that we can see and have, those are good. That is how we normally define good. But good also has another way to be defined, and it's this. The Greek language also can define good as something that is profitable, useful and beneficial in effect. Okay? Something that is profitable, useful, and beneficial in effect. This this is where James is drilling down. Okay? That good goes beyond just the tangible. Good is something that is profitable and beneficial that affects me. It brings change to me. In fact, even the word perfect there in our text, it's defined as an end, a purpose, or a goal. It's something that can, is to be complete, mature, fully developed. So if you were to take the word good and the word perfect in, in, in the Greek and you were to combine these two, the idea is this is that God looks at what he is giving you and I as good because it's going to do something in me. The idea is that, remember, um, as a believer in Christ, we are to follow Christ, walk with Christ, live for Christ, become more like Christ. So there are times where God will bring something into my life like a trial, a storm, a fiery trial. And you and I look at that and we think it is what? Bad. From our point of view, this is bad. This is not good. There, how in the world can this be good? Because I'm looking at it from my eyes, my human eyes, my human point of view. But if I can take my eyes and go, okay, God, how is this good in your eyes? All of a sudden, it goes, God is using this to change me. Because here's what trials, if we can, um, again, guys, if we can just step back from our human emotions and step into true, okay, here's what the Bible really is about. And, and, and spiritually look at this and go, when I'm going through a trial, it has a purpose. And the purpose is this, is to mature me to grow me, to strengthen me spiritually. Do you want to know what it really is meant to do? To help me lean into God. 
But how many times, what do trials do? Pushes us away from God. Because why? The enemy deceives us in thinking God's not good. And we can become angry at God. We become bitter at God. We, become, we start to question God. And we're not leaning into God. We're leaning away from God. You see, the trial in our eyes is not good. But in the eyes of God, even a trial is a good gift because it's what it's meant to do. How many like being in the deep end of the pool right now? That's hard teaching, isn't it? That's hard to grasp because none of us want to view a trial as something that can be good. But it's what it does in us and God working through us. Good gifts, perfect gifts, the good that comes, comes from a good God. But now this is where we need to understand the reality of deception comes in. The reality of temptation as right before, just a couple verses right before what we're in, he was talking about temptation. Now here's where temptation and deception comes in when it comes to the goodness of God. One way Satan uses temptation and and deception in regards to the goodness of God is this. God is holding back on you. When we read the Bible and God in his word tells us to do certain things or not to do certain things, live this way. Don't live this way. Act this way. Don't act this way. Talk like this. Don't talk like this. You see, the Bible tells us how you and I are to live and not live like a believer in Christ. So guess what the enemy wants to convince us of? God is holding back on you. Because if he was truly good, he would let you live however you would want. He would let you choose whatever you would want. God's holding back. And that's exactly what he did with Adam and Eve. Think about it. God gave Adam and Eve one command. Just one thing to obey. Do not eat of this one tree. Don't eat of the tree of the tree of good and knowledge. I don't want you to eat of that tree. And Satan comes to them and says, did God really say that? Do you know that the only reason why he's telling you not to eat it is really because he's kind of jealous because if you eat it, you'll become like him. Your eyes will be opened. You see, he's holding back. If God truly loved you, he'd let you eat of that tree. And he deceived them. And he tempted them. And they sinned. So guess what the enemy does to you and I? He deceives and tempts us with things like lust, sexual immorality. And here's why. God's holding back on you because there's something better sexually. He tempts us with pride and deceives us with a prideful attitude because God's holding back on. He doesn't want you to be prideful because he doesn't want you to be all you can be. He deceives us and tempts us with greed because the enemy is going to tell you, you know, God's just holding back on you because he doesn't want you to enjoy more of the things that life can offer. And we buy into that. And so guess what we do? We become greedy and we covet because we want more things. Because he's trying to teach or tell us, if God truly loved you, 
he would let you have whatever you would want. He would let you just live how you wanted. But he doesn't do that, does he? He tells you what you can do and what you can't do. So guess what God doesn't really do? He's not really good. And we buy into that. And we think, wow, if God was really good, he'd let me live this way. He'd let me act that way. He'd let me. It's a deception. But here, I believe, is the kicker. So not only will he try to convince you and I that God's not good by, because he'll tell us God's holding back, but I think here's the kicker of it. The real temptation, the real deception. God's not good because you have this trial on your life. If God was really good, you wouldn't be going through this cancer. If God was really good, that death never would have happened. If God really was good, he would take the trial out of your life. If God was really good, he would never have let you have this in your life. If God was really good, dot, dot, dot. And guess what we do? We believe it. And that's where Christians get derailed. That's where Christians get off course. The greatest temptation, the greatest deception the enemy can get into our brain, into our heart is this. I can't trust God. I can't believe God. I don't believe God is good. I don't believe God is faithful. I don't believe God is going to come through. I can't believe God. And if he can get you to where you can't believe God, where you can't trust God, he's won. Because every time a trial comes into your life, every time something hard comes into your life, he will convince you God's not good. And that's when all of a sudden, guess what happens in my heart? It becomes cold. It becomes angry and bitter. And I shake my fist at God. And that's when people are like, if that's the way God is, thank you, but no thank you. And they leave church they abandon their faith. They walk away. And guess what the enemy's doing? Lounging on the beach with the Mai Tai in his hand going, another success. You see, that's why you and I need to affirm almost every day, if not if every moment, God is good. Even in the storm, even in the trial, the hardship, the pain. It may not look good. It may not be good in our eyes, but we have to affirm that even in this, God is still good. I love Psalm 106 and Psalm 107, right at the very, be on the, the first line of both of those Psalms, it says, give thanks unto the Lord for he is good. It's this, the psalmist is just affirming, he's making a declaration, God is good. No matter what happens in my life, God is good. And maybe that's where you are today. You need to start affirming God is good in your prayer time. And God isn't good because your circumstances change. You may not understand the trial. You may not know why it's in your life. You may not know when it's coming to a conclusion, if it ever comes to a conclusion. You may not be able to control the outcome of that. But here's what you can know. You can know God is good. 
Here's what you can control, what you affirm. You can affirm with your mouth in your prayer time, God, I don't understand this thing. I don't like this thing, but I believe you are still good. That's a declaration that you and I can make every day, every moment when you feel that deception come in. When you feel that lie and the enemy's trying to convince you, God's not good. If he was good, you would, and you got to start affirming, God, you are good. God, you are good. God, you are good. So to stay on course, affirm that deception is real. Affirm God's goodness. Here's the third thing. To stay on course, affirm God's changelessness. Affirm God's changelessness. So again, verse 17 He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Now, James is comparing God the Father to creation. He's saying, okay, you got God the Father, the Father of lights, meaning the moon, the sun, the stars. And he calls him the Father of lights because he's the creator of it all. All right, God's created all of it. He created the moon. He created the stars. He created the sun. He did it all. And he's comparing them. He's like, you've got the stars, the moon, and the sun, but they change. But then you have the creator one, the father of it all, who does not change. Because think about it. You and I, we got up this morning, and what's up in the sky? The sun. In about 10 hours from now, What's going to be up in the sky? The moon. Where'd the sun go? It's down. It's in a different, the moon, earth's rotated. We don't see the sun. We see the sun come up. We see the sun go down. Then the moon comes out. But here's the thing. On one day of the month, the moon is completely full and bright. And then another day of the month, where is it? It's gone. There is no moon. We're looking at the stars one night. And have you ever see a falling star? How many of you know that falling star is not like on a journey anywhere? It's falling because it's what? Done. It's, it's no longer a star. You see, stars come and go. They explode. They change. From our perspective, all the celestial bodies, they have their changes. They have their rotation. They have their, their time, whatever it is. But guess what he's comparing God to? Unchanging. God never changes. He is the unchanging one. Everything about him, God's character, unchanging. God's attributes, unchanging. God's goodness, unchanging. God's faithfulness, unchanging. God's love, unchanging. God's mercy, unchanging. God's grace, unchanging. God's character is unchanging. God is, what's the word I'm looking for? Unchanging. God is unchanging. And here's what the phenomenal part of God being unchanging is. Um, He's unchanging even when you are. His unchangingness is not based on your performance. It's not based on whether you are good or bad. God is unchanging all the time. He is unchanging. And that's why we know that we can count on that. We can affirm the unchangingness of God. That's who he is. 
that's at the heart of God. He's unchanging. And so if I know that his goodness is unchanging, even when a trial comes into my life, I can't sit there and go, well, I've got a bad trial. God is bad. God is still good because he's unchanging. God loves me in my unlovableness. Why? Because his love is unchanging. God is merciful to me when I shouldn't have his mercy. Why? Because his mercy is unchanging. Everything about God is unchanging. That's why the scriptures say that he is the same as yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging. And that is a truth that you and I, again, we need to affirm the unchangingness of God. And I believe that's why David was able to write in Psalm 23. He, he writes like just confidently. He says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. He's talking about the goodness and the mercy of God. He's just like, man, I am so confident of this. It's not about me. I'm just so confident that, that surely no matter where I go, what direction I change, wherever I, whatever. God's mercy and his goodness. Man, they're chasing me like two dogs out of a yard. And they are following me. Wherever I go, man, they are following me. I turn around, there it is. I go to bed, there it is. I get up, there it is. I go to work, there it is. Goodness and mercy, me. mercy following me all the days of my life. You see, that's the unchangingness of God. And you have got to affirm that. God's goodness, his mercy, his love, everything. Guess what they're doing to you? Following you all the days of your life. And then lastly, to stay on course, affirm God's love. Affirm God's love. Look at verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Now, on the surface, you read that and go, that makes no sense to me, Jim. So let's just move on. Well, if you move past that verse, you're missing it. You're missing the most wonderful truth there is. Through it all, through all the trials, everything Satan wants to do. Here's what James is saying. The greatest proclamation, the greatest declaration, the greatest showing of God's goodness is this, your salvation. Because that's where this verse is going. The fact that God forgives us to begin with is astronomically phenomenal. Okay, that's why we need to understand that the source of salvation is from the will of God. Because if you notice right there in the verse, it says, of his, own free, of his own will, he brought us forth. Okay, he's talking about the salvation and, and his own will. God does this thing. All right, you and I, um, there was... <laughs> It wasn't sought after. It wasn't bought. It was nothing from you and I. We did not chase after God. God chased after us. Isn't that what John 3, 16 tells us? For God so loved the world that he gave. That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall have eternal life. You see, God enacted that thing. In the book of Romans chapter 5, verse 8, 
It says, for God chose his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Ephesians chapter 2 says, while we were dead in our sin. This is what Christ did for you and I. You see, it's through what God did. His action. His initiating this thing. I like what Matthew Henry says from his commentary. He says, the original of this good work is here declared. It is of God's own will, not by our skill or our power, not from any good foreseen in us or done by us, but purely from the good will and grace of God. Purely from the will and grace of God are you and I saved. The source of salvation is the will of God. The channel of salvation is the word of God. Look at what he says. He says, of his own own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. This bringing forth is the spiritual rebirth. It's, it's, it's the, the salvation. It's the forgiveness that you and I have. And he brings it forth by the word of truth. The word of truth is this, the gospel. It is the gospel of Christ. It's the good news. It's what the word says about Jesus. Knowing, so when the, 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 the word of truth means that when the word of truth is preached... The gospel is proclaimed, you are hearing it. And when you hear the truth, and here's the truth, you are a sinner. And because you are a sinner, you are separated from God for all eternity with no hope of ever getting there. Forever lost, forever condemned because you are a sinner. But God so loved the world, meaning he loves sinners, that he sent Christ to die for sinners. And Jesus dies on a cross his blood shed. And when Jesus died on the cross, his sacrifice became the redemption for you and for me. And then when you come to the place where you hear that truth, I'm a sinner, Jesus dies for sinners, and you put your faith in Christ alone, not in what you can do, not in your goodness, not in your kindness, not in anything you can do or work, but in Christ alone, you realize, I am a sinner, I need a savior. Jesus, save me. Be my savior. And it's at that point that you become born again, spiritually reborn, regenerated spiritually, and you are now in a right standing with God because of what Christ did for you. You see, that's the word of truth. That's the gospel message. And that's what I just spoke to you, the word of truth. I'm speaking the word of truth to you. And that salvation comes through the word of truth. And, but then the outcome of salvation is that we become first fruits. And that's what he says there. He says that he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Those words, first fruits, they mean the, 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 the choicest part, the best part. It's an Old Testament um, verbiage where when people would br- go gather their crops, their first fruit was the, the, the tenth part. It was the very first part that they brought onto the Lord. It was the best. It was the choices of everything else. And so what James is saying here, he's like, okay, look at all the creation. Look at the universe. Look at all the stars. Look at everything God has created. Look at everything on the earth. And here's the truth. You're the best. You're the first fruit. The choicest. I like what um, one Puritan writer said. He says, the world are his goods, meaning God, are God's goods 
but you are his treasure. You see, Christ brought you forth. Through Christ, you are brought forth into a saving relationship with God. You are the first fruit. You are the best, the choicest, not because of you, okay? None of us are standing up going, I know I'm good. Look at me. I am just too sexy for my shirt. No, you're not. You're still messed up like a soup sandwich. I got them both in in one message. We all, before God, without Christ, are nothing. But with Christ, with my salvation in him, I am everything. I am the choicest and I am the best because of Christ. Here's the conclusion. I wrote this down so that way I could say it the best. Here's the conclusion of it. God is good. All that he does is good. There is no changing in his goodness and salvation is his greatest goodness. And if you know Jesus, you have the greatest goodness already in you. And if you know Christ, you can affirm that God is good. And if you know that God is good, no matter what you go through in this life, you can still trust in him. Amen? Let's all stand and get ready to close. If you would just bow your head with